0: It is good to be with you tonight. Pastor Michael is still under the weather, and so they called the bullpen, and here I am. So I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged to be with you tonight. As we uh, open our Bibles, I, I pray that you have a Bible or a way to follow along and read. Uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews, and uh, we're going to continue through our study in the book of Hebrews as we uh, go into chapter 3. Tonight, we are going to look at just the first six verses of chapter three. Um, I could probably teach four sermons on just these six verses. Uh, Pastor Michael uh, has very lengthy notes, and since I was jumping in last minute, he said, Oh, I have a few notes, a few notes, he said, uh, on Hebrews uh, chapter three, and he sent me a novel. Um, so I did, I did steal a little bit of his notes, and then um, thankfully I had a couple of days to prepare as well. So um, I, I've been very excited and looking forward to being in the Word with you tonight. This is a fantastic passage. The book of Hebrews is fantastic. Um, and so as we continue our study, I pray that we'll be attentive tonight, that we would desire to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ together. Uh, there's so much to glean from in this text, in this short passage that we'll cover tonight. Before we do, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house tonight. We're going to talk a lot about your house uh, tonight in our text, and it is a privilege and an honor to be in the midst of your people, to know that uh, when we gather together, you are faithful to meet us here in this place tonight, and so. We want to just acknowledge before we go any further, Lord, that we need you. We need your uh, guidance. We need your direction. We need your wisdom and your knowledge. If any good will come from tonight. And so we we surrender this time to you. We ask that you would be pleased as we study your word. Um, May your Holy Spirit guide and lead our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 3, why don't we stand as we read the word of God together tonight. We're just going to read the first six verses. I'm going to read from the ESV this evening, and it reads like this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Amen. May the Lord write his word on our hearts. You can have a seat. This is a powerful passage, but maybe at uh, first glance, if this is a new text to you, there might be some confusing language in here. And so we get the privilege to uh, unpack it tonight together. Uh, The author of Hebrews here is uh, writing to a group who is tempted to go back to their Judaism. The Hebrews that he's writing to, we don't know who the author is, and we don't even really know the exact group of people that the author is writing to, but we do know a few things. We know that they know each other well. It's safe to assume that this is a group of Jewish people because they're well acquainted with the Old Testament law, and they have high regard for Moses. And this was an issue in the first century early church because the temptation, and this still exists today, there are many Jews who are not Messianic Jews. They do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? They don't believe the Messiah has yet come, and so they're still waiting for the Messiah. And so this is a group that is tempted, uh, though they have confessed Christ, to go back to their hope in the law and in Moses. And so we're going to see that the author is reminding them to hold fast. That is our title tonight: to hold fast to the anchor of their their soul, the anchor of their faith, who is Jesus. And so. Tonight, as we look at the text, that's kind of a little bit of a backdrop. They've made a commitment to Christ, uh, but they were considering returning to the empty rituals of Judaism. And they thought highly of Moses, the founding figure of Judaism. But Jesus, as our author has clearly stated, is superior to Moses. Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets were were portraying. As we go all the way back to the beginning, when we look at the book of Genesis and we see different characters that God used all throughout the New Testament scriptures, they were all pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. If you you regard the Old Testament as secondary and, and boring, you've missed it because there is so much rich rich uh, knowledge and wisdom to be found in the Old Testament scriptures because it's all pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And so if you have that view of the Old Testament, I would challenge you to begin doing devotionals and studying and spending time in the Old Testament scriptures because they're so, it's so amazing to see the way that God speaks prophetically and the way that his word always comes to pass. He never fails. Amen. Amen. And so we know about the group that the letter is written to, and we also know that uh, they're facing various forms of persecution uh, and suffering for the sake of Christ, for, for being Christ followers. They, they, they've been imprisoned. They've been uh, possibly beaten and, and um, ridiculed by their culture. Does that sound familiar? Nothing is new under the sun. Christianity has been under attack since its very origins. And yet, here we are. For thousands of years, people have been trying to prove that the Bible is not legitimate, that there's historical inaccuracies, that Jesus didn't exist, or Jesus was just some guy. But here we are tonight, 2,000-something years later, and the church is still alive because Christ's bride will not be defeated. And so I pray that you take hope tonight, and that is the encouragement. The exhortation in this section is the writer is saying to this group, hold fast, I know that you're going through uh, tr- tr- struggles and trials right now, but hold on. Hold on to the hope that you've found in Christ. And, and we know this uh, persecution is there because you can look in chapter 10 and verses 32 and 34. He, he mentions it. And so it's it's easy to confess Christ in a world when everybody around you agrees with you. In fact, it's easy to do anything and have any opinion when everyone around you supports you. Amen? It's a different thing to have an opinion that sticks out as maybe you're the only one who thinks that way. And I was just listening to a video from Tim Keller yesterday. He's a a well-known author and speaker in the Christian world. And Tim Keller said, we have watched the transition from a a largely Christendom culture to a post-Christendom culture now. And people are largely opposed to the gospel. And he, he breaks down this idea that Even 50 years ago, there was at least a societal, um, unity that there was, there was some sort of moral law. And we know from apologetics, if, if you've been studying to give a defense for your faith, uh, William Lane Craig has a fantastic book I referenced on Sunday night called On Guard, and it's, uh, it's an apologetics book. And William Lane Craig says that morality cannot exist without a moral lawgiver. So if there's a general consensus in society that there is some measure of morality, then we know there must be a moral lawgiver. And so uh, the way Keller put it is there's basically the dots are out there in the culture and for so long, it was the the job of the church to just help connect the dots. And if you could just get people to connect the dots, if you will, they could start to draw conclusions that maybe there truly is a God in heaven and maybe there is actually more to this life than just living for a while and then rotting in the ground, But Tim Keller said the sobering reality is that where we are now at as a culture is we've moved from where we just simply need to connect the dots for people to begin to see the hope of the gospel and the truth and the reality of the gospel to now, in a post-Christendom society, it's more like the dots aren't even there. And so we have to almost start from ground zero. And you can see it in our culture, can you not? Basic moral principles seem to be absent I was watching an interview um, with a man uh, named Matt Walsh and I don't agree with everything Matt Walsh says, but he's been outspoken against transgenderism amongst children because this is being pushed amongst children. You know, our federal government a few weeks ago came out with a statement and said that they believe that children under the age of, I believe, uh, 13, it was something along those lines, are are too young to be on social media, and we need to be more careful. And this is what they said, this is their caveat, because these kids are still uh, growing into who they're going to be. And yet the same government is fighting for those same children under the age of 13 to be able to go and get a transition surgery and change their sex, even though that is impossible, by the way. You cannot change your sex. But this is what they're saying is, and and, and then they can do it without even parental consent. Can I just tell you as a father, if I found out that somebody was taking one of my children to go and have a, a sex change surgery without my consent, I don't really know how I'd respond to that. But it wouldn't be pretty. Because that's my child and ultimately God's child. And God doesn't make mistakes. God created that child in his image for a purpose. And so... You can see it in our culture. Moral anything seems to be almost absent. The ability to make a logical decision and look at something and say, if this is the premise and we follow this all the way through, where does it lead? And I can tell you where it leads because God's word is authoritative, final, finished. And it says that sin, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to death. That is where the ideology of man left to his own thoughts in his own direction will end up. You want to you avoid death in the ultimate sense? Follow Christ. And the, the exhortation from the author is stay the course, hold fast. And you have to imagine there's all sorts of conjecture about who the author of Hebrews is and we don't know and it's really not worth our time to guess at it but it is probably somebody who's well acquainted with suffering for the sake of the gospel. You know, it is easy to encourage people to hang in there when your life is great, right? But there's something about empathy when somebody can be empathetic towards a situation and sympathetic and say, I understand, I've been there. And for you tonight, I don't know what, Temptations are before you to forsake Christ. Maybe some of you in this room tonight have gone wayward. You've lost your way. Now, I'd I'd venture to say that most people who take the time out of a busy week, and we're all busy, we all have a million things to do, to be in church for a couple of hours and sit under biblical teaching are probably doing okay spiritually. But I will not assume that about anyone, because we're going to talk about this tonight. You can be in the church, you can be in the camp, and not know Christ. And so... As we look at the exhortation to this group of believers, may it be that we also look inward and say, do I do this? Do I do this? Am I guilty of doing this? Am I, am I on the verge of forsaking the things of Christ for what the world offers and says will satisfy? And so in verse one, we look again and it says, therefore... In light of what we've just talked about, we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. He he lays the groundwork in previous chapters that Christ is greater than the angels. And we're talking about God, God's son, Jesus, being the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And he says in verse one, therefore, in light of that, Holy brothers and sisters, uh, here Paul is using the generic term for the masculine, so this is to the group of believers, men and women. You who share in a heavenly calling, you share in a heavenly calling tonight. There is a heavenly calling on my life and on your life. You know, we we get all sorts of callings in this life, don't we? We, There's all sorts of uh, voices that are knocking at the door. Saying, hey, let me in. Let me have some of your time. And there's so many things that are fighting for our attention and our focus and our time. In fact, I'd venture to say that just in the little bit that we've been here, you've already had several notifications from social media, several text messages rolling in, emails for work, emails about the kid's school and things that are coming up. And it's so easy to get distracted you know, I, I struggle with uh, being attentive for long periods of time, and so I, I realize that I have to shut out the outside world, and I have to take time to be attentive to Christ. And so as he says, you share in a heavenly calling, he says, consider Jesus. Well, what does he mean, consider Jesus? The NIV puts it this way, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your mind on Jesus. David says in the Psalms, Lord, I meditate on your word day and night. That's, that's a pretty impressive thing to say, and I would say I fall very short of that. Just this morning, I was driving my daughter to my in-laws uh, so that I could get to work, and I'm I'm listening to some worship music, and I get more defensive as a driver when my my baby girl is in the backseat of my car, and so when people do stupid things, and oh, people do stupid things on the road, and I'm driving, and this lady pulled out right in front of me, and so I did the whole, whoa, and you know, not even time to honk, just whoa, And, and I'm coming down Foothill, and she just pulled out, and there I am singing worship songs and I'm looking I have a little digital monitor I could see my daughter in the back seat and I'm you know in a good mood and in a moment it was like everything in me was like you oh, and I'm like oh my goodness the flesh is strong and in just a moment I can go from being fixed on Christ to being fixed on killing someone not really but angry and so he says fix your thoughts On Christ, and then he says something interesting that maybe you've never seen before in scripture. He says, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, we've heard Christ described uh, many times as the high priest. He is the ultimate high priest, but as an apostle, that might be a new term um, put as, uh, uh, unto Jesus for you. Maybe as you're studying the Bible, you've never heard Jesus as described as an apostle. You, you think Jesus, he had 12 apostles. Uh, he, had, he had apostles that followed him, but Jesus is an apostle? Well, the word here for apostle is it translated, uh, I guess if we were to transliterate it, it would be more ambassador. And, and Jesus is the ultimate ambassador for the kingdom of God. He's the perfect ambassador for the kingdom of God. Jesus came and he perfectly came on behalf of the heavenly father. You and I also have received this as part of our heavenly calling. We are ambassadors. And we talked about this when we went through our study together in uh, Philemon. We, We talked about that we are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And that was a huge vein that ran through that letter. And so, we need to remember that. But that, that word there, Jesus is the ultimate ambassador, if you will. So he calls us first to be holy. He, he refers to the, the group as holy brothers and sisters. Some of you don't feel so holy tonight. And can I tell you, neither do I. Sometimes I don't feel very holy at all. Um, sometimes I look at my life and I look at, The way that I've maybe acted in a particular situation, and the last word I would use to describe myself would be holy, and and that's that's an understandable place. But you are holy because you've inherited Christ's righteousness. It's been His sacrifice at the cross has been counted to you as righteousness. It's the greatest trade in the history of mankind. You give Christ your sin and your baggage, and He gives you in exchange, his righteousness, and the finished work on the cross. And so you are, uh, if you were to take this and apply it to yourself, yes, you have a heavenly calling, and you are holy, set apart, if you will, for the purposes of Christ and his kingdom. We've been adopted into the family of God, welcomed in to his home, which is kind of the language that we see in this text. We've been welcomed into the family of God, to dwell with him, if you will, in his home. And the basis of this unity in Christ is found in this heavenly calling. The church, by its God-given nature, should be diverse. It should be diverse in race, in ethnicity, in, in age in, in uh, different walks of life, and different backgrounds. The church should be diverse. It should be a diverse place because what unites us is not any of these earthly temporary things. No, what unites us is the heavenly calling from Christ. Amen? It always concerns me when a church is only young people and only old people. Both are not good. And I believe both have uh, a destiny that is not very good if they stay that way. You need both. Now, age does not always equate to spiritual maturity. And in my over 10 years of working at a church and working in ministry, I found that to be very true. And so don't think because you're older tonight that, well, I'm fine. I've been a Christian for this many years, so big whoop. I know people who've been Christians for 30 years and they can barely articulate, they're they're almost biblically illiterate. Because if you sit and you just wander off and you just check the box and say, well, I was in church this week once, so I'm good with God. No, that's religion. This is not a religion. This is, this is a group of people that are saying, I want to know Christ and let him do his transformative work in my life and in my heart and in my mind. And so to be in the family of God, we're unified by this one thing, this heavenly calling according to the way Hebrews puts it here. So we will be diverse in nature, and I think that's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. We share in a heavenly calling. And then he says, as we've talked about a little bit, consider Jesus, that is, fix your minds on Jesus. Oh, if we'd fix our minds on Jesus more often. Amen. Amen. So many of our problems could be avoided if we followed this one exhortation. When we take our eyes off Christ, we fall apart very quickly. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and immediately sank under the waves. He also took his eyes off Jesus in the midst of Jesus' arrest. And moments before, Like me in the car this morning, Lord, I'll serve you. Peter, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. And Jesus, I can imagine in a very calm and loving manner, like a father to his son says, I appreciate it, but truly I say to you, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you even know me three times Oh, how quickly we can fall when we take our eyes off Christ. And what happened to Peter in that situation? What happened to him? He was faced with real persecution. He's standing at a fire warming his hands, and a small girl says, you're one of them. And he says, I don't even know him. I don't even know him. And and, and it's so easy for us to look into these situations in Scripture and say, oh, how could he do that? But we do that to the Lord all the time. We shrink back in the face of adversity and we we decide not to say something when something must be said. We're we're, we're going out on Saturday morning to take a stand against genocide against the next generations because babies are being killed in the name of women's liberties and rights, in the name of convenience. And so we have to take a stand on things that matter to the heart of God. God. We must take a stand. And so, yes, it's easy to say it is a different thing to do. A huge number of people in this, uh, the nation of Israel, they, 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 they're, they're redeemed. And the Lord rescues them out of the slavery in the land of Egypt. And how long does it take? When you start studying your Bible, you realize it's, it's been weeks since they've been delivered from hundreds of years of slavery. And they're like, well, I mean, we, we don't have a lot of food out here. It's pretty hot. The Lord's forsaken us. Let's go back to Egypt where we had three square meals a day. And you have to imagine the quarreling in the Israelite camps. People are like, are you kidding me? You want to go back? You want to go back to that? And people are like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I mean, yeah, sure, we were, in, we were in bondage and we were peasants and we were beaten if we didn't do what we were told, but, but they gave us food and water when we needed it. And, and we can do the same thing in this life. So many of us are fighting the temptation, maybe tonight, to go back to Egypt, to go back to the things that are appealing to the flesh and say, well, it's not that bad. What's just a little bit of compromise? But the prodigal son didn't become the prodigal son in a moment. No, it was it was. It was, as the, the story is being told, I imagine that it was over a period of time that his heart was becoming hardened towards his father, bitter. And when bitterness and and the flesh are not kept in check, it doesn't take long. It's a slow eating away. And you can see it in our own culture here in the U.S. It's little things. It's the breaking down of Uh, the nuclear family. It's the taking away of the scripture being read in public schools. It's the acceptance of men being weak and not leading their families and being portrayed in every cartoon show that you and I grew up watching on TV as the father is this worthless hunk that just sits on a recliner. Do you realize the conditioning that has happened? You watch these old shows, I look back and watch old TV shows that maybe I grew up watching, even the Goldbergs, and the father is depicted as just this useless lump that just sits there and does nothing, doesn't lead his family, has no authority. And and I think that those are little ways that our society has been conditioned to get to the point that we are now. It's a slow eating away. We must keep our eyes on Jesus We have to be on guard. We have to stay steadfast. We have to hold firm so that we don't fall away. And so many of those Israelites missed what God had for them. They never entered into God's promise, into his peace because of what? Unbelief. Now, it's easy for us to think about these passages and think, weren't they being led by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night? How could they deny that God was leading them? And yet, they did. And yet, you and I do it all the time. God has revealed himself in his word. He's proven himself to be faithful in our lives through personal experiences through his word over and over again. And yet, we constantly doubt. We, we constantly worry about what will happen next and what the next thing is. When you meet a Christian who truly has peace in Christ and worry is something that seems to be a, very, uh, a thing they don't worry about very much, it just it's refreshing, isn't it? When somebody truly trusts the Lord, I wanna, be, I wanna have that type of faith that says, Lord, I trust you. And do I do that perfectly? And will I ever do that perfectly? No. But the Lord is asking for us to be faithful and the writer of Hebrews is exhorting the church to stay the course. And so the writer appeals to the recipients of the letter to intently think on who Jesus is and why he came. And if you look at chapter four, just a little bit ahead, in verse 11, the writer says, let me make sure I put the right reference here. Go to, um, well, look at 10, 410. He says, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he says, he's quoted the Old Testament. Then he says in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, Be careful, be careful, because I know that you're in the church, I know you're in the camp, but be on guard that your heart is not slowly growing distant from your Creator. And it can happen. Can it not? We can sit in a pew and even be serving actively in the body and be growing far from the Lord, our heart growing cold. And so the writer says, be on guard, be careful lest you fall away. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we become critical, cynical, depressed, anxious, worried, tired, the list goes on. Are you grumpy? Are you a grumpy person? Are you an anxious person? Are you a critical person? Always the first to point out issues and and flaws? Ask yourself these questions tonight and then let the Lord transform those areas of your life. If we could just keep our eyes on Jesus. Oh, how our problems would fade. James talks about remaining steadfast. We just went through the youth conference two weekends ago, and I taught through uh, James chapter one with the students, and as well as Proverbs three, and we just talked about this idea of staying steadfast. The idea of steadfast—you could uh, to give it some imagery—is like a tree that's firmly planted by fresh water. That tree is strong. Have you ever tried to take down a tree? I mean, those roots are everywhere. A well-established, healthy tree has roots that grow deep and wide and it is not easy to take down. In fact, you see videos of cars. I don't know about you, but I like to binge like YouTube dash cam videos where it's just like car accidents from people's dash cams. I don't know how I get on these rabbit trails sometimes on YouTube, but I just, it's just like car accidents from people's dash cams. Now I'm the only one who's that weird, okay. And so uh, sometimes I'm watching and sometimes people will hit like semi-trucks, like these huge trucks, 53 footers, fully loaded, thousands of pounds, hit these trees and the tree doesn't even budge. I want to be like that tree in a spiritual sense, firmly rooted in Christ, firmly planted so that when the storms come, when the trials come, I can remain, as James says, steadfast. He says, blessed are those, blessed are you brothers, when you remain steadfast under various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he goes on to say, when steadfastness has produced its full effect, you will be perfect, lacking in nothing. And he's referring in an imagery to the Olympic Games. And they would actually say that if you won these uh, Olympic Games, they would do where it was like triathlons and multiple events within a meet. If you won all of them, they would say he's perfect. And that's the language that James is referring to when he says that. Will you be perfect if you remain steadfast in Christ? No. You're not going to be perfect in the sense that you and I think of it. But the language that James is appealing to is he's saying, he's drawing the conclusion, you will win. You will win the ultimate race. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, run to win. Don't, have you ever seen a, a, a race where somebody's not trying? <laughs> it's not very impressive, is it? When they're putting in very little effort, you know, I've been going to the gym more and trying to get back into a routine, and there are, the guy that I work out with plays no games. I mean, he, he we are there it's business only and I need that because I will I'll I know people at the gym and and my brothers told me I hate working out with you because I have a lot of friends from high school and stuff that we still run in the same kind of circles and we see each other at the gym and it ends up becoming social hour with Shane and it's like this is not why I'm here and so the the guy that I work out with his name is Marlon we've known each other a long time we met each other back in the day doing jujitsu, and uh he he plays no games Marlon is let's work out and we chat, you know, about things, but it's mostly like me trying to keep up with Marlone because he's an animal. But I, now that I'm in this routine of just being super focused, and you, and you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was really big on the mental aspect of physical fitness. This was something that Schwarzenegger swore by in his heyday as a bodybuilder. He said that he would literally, in, in, in the gym when Arnold was there, there was no music and there was no talking. It was all business. And you can you could see the results that it yielded. It was Mr. Olympia how many times? And absolutely huge. Yeah, sure, he was on steroids. But look, steroids aside, there's a lot of hard work that goes into a physique like that. It, it, steroids is, yeah, not something I'm interested in. But getting a physique like that, no doubt, takes hard, hard work and dedication. It doesn't just happen because you take a pill or an injection. And this guy was no joke. I mean, he went into the gym and he was there to lift and to focus. And Schwarzenegger said that when he would lift, he would focus on the muscle he was trying to work out. So if he was doing a curl, he would be in the mirror and he would be thinking, bicep does all the work. And there was a mental focus towards a goal. Sometimes I'm in the gym and I look around and I see people and I'm like, there's very little mental focus here. Right? Like, There's people on the treadmill and they're like, people over at the, they're in front of the free weights and the weights still remain free because they're not picking any of them up. (laughs) There are people who only use the mirror at the gym. I don't understand that one either. I'm uncomfortable when I see my own reflection in a public place let alone where the whole place has mirrors around. I understand the mirror serve a purpose to make sure your form is good, but there are those who have the video cameras now. We have influencers at the gym filming themselves working out and then complaining when people look over their way. That's a whole nother subject. And so there has to be attention and focus. And that's the idea in the text. Fix your eyes on the prize. Stay the course James says, stay steadfast. And so, when we are faced with the temptation to sin, do we first and foremost fix our eyes on Christ or on how we want to operate? Hmm. It is easy to justify sinful behavior when you don't run it through Christ first. Have you ever done something where you knew if you asked permission, it wasn't going to happen, so you just did it so that you could get it done? And then you said, as many of you have said over the years, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I would argue that's unwise in almost every scenario. And we do this with the Lord. It is easy to justify sinful behavior when we don't first take it to Jesus, which is why, friend, you aren't taking it to Jesus. Because you know what the answer is. You know you're in sin in an area, and if you don't take it to the Lord, you don't have to deal with the accountability. But if we take everything before the throne of our Savior first, imagine how our lives will be transformed. What if before we reacted, we asked the question, how would Christ react? And then how do I follow that example? And can I tell you something? It's not a mystery. It's right here. But you have to know this to know him. He has already spoken. Alistair Begg, I was listening to a sermon on this section, and he said he came across a book in the bookstore and it was called, uh, I don't know the author, I can't remember, but it was about like, uh, the, the title of the book was something like Talking to God, and Alistair Begg said it was one of the most, uh, in only the way Alistair Begg can say it, he said it was total rubbish, and he goes on to explain that the author is basically making a case that all he has to do to hear from the Lord is just sit, and God talks to him, and he depicts in this book conversations that he's had with God, but he doesn't know the word. There's nothing about scripture. You want to hear from God? Open your Bible. If you want to hear from the Lord and have discernment and wisdom, open your Bible. That's why we teach the Bible verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter at Living Truth because we believe that if you hear our opinion for 45 minutes on a Sunday, you won't be better off. But if you hear what Christ has spoken already, You will be able to navigate the storms and the temptations of this life. And so the author says Jesus, the ultimate ambassador. Yes, that was verse one. Verse two, who, Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him, that is God the Father, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. Now this is where to the Jew who's reading this, there may begin to be some tension because you know and I know that Jesus in his earthly ministry faced a lot of adversity when he started saying things like, I am greater than Moses because Moses was the guy. For the first century Jew and for many Jews still today who do not believe the Messiah has yet come, Moses is like the ultimate authority. He's the one who brought the law. Uh, He's the one who ascended Mount Zion. He's the one who experienced God's presence. He led the people out of uh, slavery. So there was this high regard in this culture for Moses. But the author is saying, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. And then he draws this example, and he says, just as much as more glory as the builder of a house has, more than the honor the house itself has. For every house has been built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful, indeed. Was he perfect? No. In fact, Moses' failures actually kept him out of the promised land. And you read this in the book of Exodus, and you think, what? What? After everything that Moses has put up with, he can't enter, but you know why he couldn't enter? Because he misrepresented Christ. And so Jesus comes and he is the perfect fulfillment, the perfect atonement, the perfect leader. Where every other leader prior fails, Jesus stays perfect. And that's the message in our text tonight that Jesus is worthy of more glory. He is greater than even Moses. And he says, every house has a builder. You know, it's easy to live in a house, isn't it? Anybody struggle to live in their house? Like everybody's pretty good at living in a house, right? Doesn't take a ton of skill to live in a house. I'm pretty good at living in a house. If you asked me to build a house, that's a different task. Some of you I I would never let you build my house because I've seen you use a hammer and that would not the house would not last. I wouldn't want to be under that roof. Now imagine if you saw a house and the engineer and the the head of the construction team and everybody who built the house is standing there and you went up to the house and you were like, "Wow, good job house." That would be very bizarre and kind of insulting to the people who actually built the house, right? Who is worthy of more honor and glory, the one who lives in the house or the one who built the house? That's the picture that's being drawn. Of course, it's the one who built the house and ultimately, it's not just the house. It's a a figurative picture here, but the idea is that Christ is the author of all things. He says in verse four, but the builder of all things is God, Jesus is greater than Moses. Christ tasted death for everyone so that we might be redeemed. And so Christ steps in and he fulfills what no man, no sacrifice, and we're going to see this more as we continue in our study in Hebrews, could ever fulfill. There's nothing that could atone for the sins of mankind except for the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's nothing else that can atone. He says in verse 4 every house has been built by someone. Now this seems like a pretty obvious statement, right? And yet, look at our culture. If you go and look at a building, look at this building. This building always impresses me. This is a pretty big building. There's a lot of uh, space under a very high ceiling. I sometimes wonder from an engineering perspective, how does this thing stay standing? It's an impressive thing when you begin to think about architecture and the way that structures are designed to, especially in California, our standards for structural integrity are high with earthquakes, And so there's a lot of time and attention to detail that's put into a structure. But it would be so foolish of me to say, wow, it's amazing how this building just appeared, huh? All of its intricacies and details. It would be ridiculous to suggest that this building somehow just came to be and evolved in some way. But in the same way, on a greater scale, look at the intricacies of human beings and the intricacies of creation and the way that the world works together in perfect order, and people look at it and say, it's crazy how that just all evolved, huh? Are you kidding me? Basic logic from the way that things are constructed tells us that this creation has a creator, and to deny it is to deny what the creation itself testifies to, because the scripture says creation, what? Come on, church, it what? It testifies to the glory of God. You guys can talk, it's okay. Creation testifies to the glory of God. People have been trying to find other explanations for thousands of years, and they continue to fail because the answer is clear as day. But the scripture says that they will suppress the truth. The truth is before them, but they don't want it. In the same way, for you and I, the truth has been revealed. And can I tell you, friend, tonight, you are more accountable than the drunken pagan that's at a bar tonight getting absolutely obliterated. You are more accountable. And can I suggest, if you are lukewarm and passive in your faith tonight, far worse off Because you know the truth and you choose not to believe. You choose not to repent of your sin. You choose not to make things right. And the scripture makes it clear you are far more worse off. The scripture says, Lord speaking to those who are lukewarm in their faith, I chew you up and I spit you out. Literally, I vomit you out. Are you lukewarm tonight? Do you sit in church and check the box, but nothing in your life bears fruit? This is one of the hardest aspects, and this is not some pity party, but as a pastor, is watching people sit in church week after week, but nothing in their life changes. And I feel like I could shout it until my voice gives out, and still people will choose to live a life of rebellion and unholiness and refuse to repent of sin and refuse to take God's word seriously. And it's the burden that so many shepherds who care about the flock bear because we cannot make you do it. You must surrender to Christ. And maybe it's an area of your life tonight that you have pigeonholed and said, Lord, you can have all of this, but this area of my life, that's mine. And we do that. I have done that. Lord, reveal to us when we make that mistake. Would you allow Christ tonight to come into every area of your life and do the transformative work that only he can do? You will continue to struggle with whatever it is for you tonight, and it's something for all of us, Let's not play games tonight. All of us have temptations that are underlying that say, go back to Egypt. Go back to your religion. That's the whole idea of this text. Don't go back to the law and to Moses because the Messiah has come. How silly would it be for us to know Christ and to know who he is and yet remain far from him? You know, in different uh, years of evangelism and things, I've come across a lot of encounters with people who are living on the streets. And I'm sympathetic towards many situations, whether it be addiction or a fallout with family, unemployment, the list goes on of reasons why people might end up on the streets. But the thing that, that I can't quite grasp is over the years, the, the, the numerous conversations I've had with people who don't want to get better. They just don't want to. They know there are resources. They know there are steps that they can take, but they just don't wanna take them. Are you like that tonight spiritually? Seriously, friends, can, I beg you to ask yourself the question, Are you wandering spiritually tonight and you know what steps you need to take, but you won't take them? No one can make that step except you. And I don't know what it is for every person in this room. I know the areas in my life I need to continue to surrender to the Lord. The things that I keep going back to and trying to do in my own strength. None of us are above this. And he says in verse five, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But then this is the key. This is our last verse for tonight. He says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. There's a a big difference And this culture would have understood this well with a servant culture and uh, having slaves in the house. This would have been very applicable for this group. It would have been a great uh, way for them to grasp the concept. And the, the the author is saying, look, you have servants in a house, and they're faithful, but but you cannot replace the son of the the head of the household. He's the heir. You know, if you were in a palace and there was faithful servants who loved their king, that's great. But they'll not they'll never replace the heir to the throne. And that's the picture. Is Moses was a faithful servant to the end. He was faithful, but what the author is saying is don't go back to Moses because the son is here. He has come and he's ruling and reigning. You don't have to go back to the old ways because Christ has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled everything that he needed to fulfill. And Moses was the prophet Israel's great historian, under divine inspiration, he authored the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Man, Moses was a, was a guy, man. He, he did a lot of good things for the kingdom of God. He was a faithful servant. If you look back at 2.18, he, he says, uh, coming to those being encouraged to not give up. And so many of us, we read this and we, say, we, we, we just think, yeah, you know, don't give up don't give up. I'm not giving up. But if we take a deep look at each one of our lives, we know that there are areas where it, our flesh, if you will, is trying to go back to Moses. We want to go back. Sin feels good. It does. If, you, if you're trying to, uh, you know, this is like these fad diets where people are like, sugar's not good. Sugar tastes terrible. I'm gonna just convince myself that sugar tastes gross. You're not gonna make it very far. I did a no sugar fast uh, last week, so I didn't eat sugar all week. And I've read in different articles, like, oh yeah, if you don't eat sugar for long enough, when you have sugar again, you'll realize it's toxic and your your taste buds won't even like it. Let me tell you, I fasted from sugar for a week and then I had an Oreo and the Oreo tasted glorious. (laughs) So, the rumors are false. No, but I have heard this is actually true. Um, for example, I was reading a study from a doctor, and he said he, had a, he did a test group with a group of men, and they didn't eat sugar uh, for a year. And after a year, he gave them all a can of Coca-Cola, which is like 38 gra- grams of sugar. Uh, by the way, if you want to stop drinking soda and you need a visual, I want you to go home. If you have a little scale in your kitchen, I want you to pour out 38 grams of sugar onto that little scale and see how much sugar that actually is and you'll probably never have a soda ever again. It's pretty eye-opening. And he said that they took the drink and their body had become so accustomed to not having those toxins that when they took a drink, two of the guys actually vomited upon drinking the soda. Because when, the, when we starve the flesh of the things that it craves, the cravings become weaker and the spirit gets stronger. A biblical scholar many years ago drew it up as a picture as two dogs inside you that are fighting, the flesh and the spirit, and the dog that you feed the most will gain strength and will overcome the other. What are you feeding tonight in your life, the flesh or the spirit? Turn with me to John chapter five. To your left in our gospels, John chapter five. If you're new to the scriptures, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 5, 45 through 47. And it reads like this. Do do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you've set your hope. And Jesus is speaking here. He says, okay, don't think that um, I'm gonna accuse you. Moses has already written about me. So he says, for if you believed Moses, in verse 46 of John 5, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. It doesn't get any more clear than this. Jesus is saying, if you guys believe Moses, he was writing about this Messiah that was going to come. Hello, I'm right here. And Jesus fought battles for years with the religious leaders who were so caught up in their self-righteous pursuits that they couldn't see that the Son of God, God incarnate, was standing right before their eyes. And instead of arguing over the law, they should have been falling on their faces in worship. And they ended up crucifying him as they falsified a testimony against him and falsely convicted him. And they murdered the Son of God. Scripture says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Verse 47 of John 5 says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is saying, I have come as the full atonement He's the answer. He's the truth and the life. So the question becomes, who is Jesus to you tonight? Is Jesus a weekend thing for you? Well, you're here on a Wednesday night, so that's a good start. But let's let's ask the question, is Jesus a Wednesday night thing for you? Is Jesus a Wednesday night and a Sunday morning thing for you? And then the rest of your week, Who knows? Jesus may reign as the ruler over your life or maybe not. Everybody loves Jesus as the Savior, the hero of the story. But as soon as you tell people, oh, by the way, if you trust in Jesus, he has to be the Lord who rules over every area of your life. And you're going to be, if you're going to be in his house, if you will, back to Hebrews, if you're going to live in his house, you got to live by his rules. This is where a lot of kids growing up struggle, right? Everybody loves the comforts of living in mom and dad's house. But many kids struggle to adhere by mom and dad's rules. And they go in, they're in tandem. And that's the call, the heavenly calling that we're talking about in your life is that if you're going to live in the house of God, you have to live by his rules. He is the authority. Not the opinions of your coworkers. Not what you think is okay or not okay. Okay. No, what Christ has spoken, that is the authority. Go back to your Gospels. I just had you turn back to Hebrews. We're gonna jump around again. That's okay, this is nothing compared to Pastor Michael. He's all over the place, and it's great. I'm not complaining. If you wanna learn your Bible and you wanna know where things are, just bring a physical Bible and follow along, and you'll begin to learn the Scriptures and how to navigate them. Uh, Luke 24 25 says this, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 27 of Luke 24. Then, beginning with Moses, so here's our idea again, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is Jesus speaking again about how he is the ultimate fulfillment. He is Christ in the flesh. He's come to redeem men. The Old Testament is all about Christ, and Hebrews has been said to be the most Old Testament, New Testament book you'll ever read. It's full, absolutely saturated with Old Testament references. Again, that's why we teach the Bible here at Living Truth, because we believe it's the power of God. If you look at the back wall, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. You know why we put that there? So that when somebody's standing right here, they don't get too sidetracked. You don't need our opinions. We'll give it to you every once in a while, but ultimately the power of God is in his word. Let's look at verse five again in Hebrews for just a moment as we land here. We are in his house, and this is our main idea tonight, holding fast. There's some key language here. And we are his house, and the the author says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, which is Christ. It is undeniable that Christ is the one who holds us, But it is also undeniable that you must also hold on to Christ. You have to hold on. That's the whole exhortation in the section. Hold fast. Now, is it by your own strength and merit? No. You hold fast to Christ through his strength and the power of his Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, the call on your life is to hold fast. This is all throughout the New Testament scriptures. It's undeniable that you must hold on to Christ as he holds on to you. It's not this thing where you're slipping into the pit of hell and Christ is just saying, "Come with me." No, it's it's you saying and recognizing, "Lord, I need you or I'm in deep trouble." And that's the it's right here plain as day in the text. Hold fast to Christ. I will say it again, do not play games with this. If you are living in blatant sin, and very little, if any of your life, looks like a man or a woman pursuing holiness, are you a Christian? Pastors don't like to ask that question. I will ask that question tonight. Are you a Christian? Have you counted the cost of what it means to be a Christ follower in a world where, mind you, it is becoming less and less popular to be a Christ follower. If you have not noticed, count the cost tonight, family, so that you can be indeed in the family. Scripture says of the Lord that he delights to see his children walking in the truth. God takes no pleasure in the downfall of the wicked. He loves each one of us, but he is a just God. And so what is our confidence? Well, it's that Christ has saved us. And that's just the whole contrast of the section is that Moses couldn't do it, but Jesus can. He's the fulfillment. Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are few? No. He says, many. He also says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? And the most so- I think it's the most sobering scripture in the whole Bible Because it says that the Father will say to them, depart from me, I don't know you. It's as if you showed up at somebody's house and you thought you were invited to the party and the host opens the door and says, sorry, who are you? Now imagine for a minute on a human scale how humiliating that is. Maybe that's happened to you before. I don't know if that's happened to you before, but you see this depicted like in bullies in high school movies, right? Like they show up to the party and they almost pretend like they don't even know the person in an effort to make them feel less than. Now imagine on an eternal scale where your soul hangs in the balance. When that gate opens, that narrow gate, mind you, because that's what Matthew goes on to say, that it is a narrow road and a hard road that leads to life. When that gate opens, I wanna hear well-done, good and faithful servant. That's what I'm living for. We're almost out of time tonight, so I don't have time to get into the parable of the sowers because it's a whole nother can of worms, but it is relevant to our text. But here is really the bottom line for us tonight. There's one key word that will define where you are at with Christ and the genuine relationship that you have with Christ. You know what it is? It's continuance. My wife and I have been married for going on six years, and I know that that's not a long amount of time in the grand scheme of life, but I will tell you this. The testimony of my commitment to my bride is not measured by the words that I said six years ago. The testimony and the witness of my commitment to my bride is in the continuance of our relationship and the honoring of our marriage vows. I can say in a moment, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But the testimony of my faithfulness and my, my true commitment will be found in the continuance of those vows. And many people in our culture and I realize that there are people in this room who have been through divorce, and my heart breaks for you, and I know that there are so many things that surround divorce, and there's so many different circumstances. But our culture is riddled with broken commitments. And the, the picture of marriage is pointing to a picture of Christ and his bride. And how much more important is it for us to continue in the faith, to stay the course? And I will just be real with you tonight. Some of you in this room have fallen away. You've left your first love. Yes, you are in the camp, you're in the house if you will. But you've lost sight of who your master is. Come home. Repent. Be reconciled. And no one can make that step but you. No one. And so, if that is you tonight, if you've gone astray, you can come home. How gracious is our God! that though you and I fail him over and over again. Like that story of the prodigal son. I love that story because it's the heart of who our God is. The father, does it say that when the prodigal son returned, the father stood shaking his head in disgust? No, it says that when he saw his son from afar, he ran to him with open arms. And our God is a gracious and merciful God. But you are not guaranteed tomorrow, and neither am I. And I don't want to leave any doubt for my loved ones as to where I will be in eternity. I want to leave a legacy that proclaims Christ and his faithfulness. And maybe you are on the fence tonight. You've been lukewarm in your faith. Come home. Be all in. Because Though you will face trials of various kinds in this life, the reward far outweighs the struggles of this temporary time, amen? Amen. We're not gonna do a closing song tonight because the students are upstairs. They did a fantastic job. But the song that was on my heart as I was preparing this sermon was, He Will Hold Me Fast. And the opening verse of that song says, when I fear, my faith will fail he will hold me fast. And when I fear that the tempter may prevail, he will hold me fast. You wanna have continuance in your faith with Christ? Hold on to him as he holds on to you. And the beautiful thing about it is that when you are out of strength and you have nothing left in the tank, he will not forsake you. But it's about being surrendered because you can fight. I just think of the road where Paul, Saul, who becomes Paul, is on the road to Damascus. And what, what does he say? What does the Lord say? He says, oh, Saul, isn't it hard to kick against the goads? You could say, if you were to paraphrase it in modern English, it's as if the Lord said to Saul on that road, aren't you tired of fighting against me? What I'd like to do tonight and as we are pretty much out of time, but you know what, it's okay. I would like to pray for you. And what I would like you to do is look at yourself honestly tonight. Because as I've been preparing this sermon this week, I've had some rough moments with the Lord where I've had to realize this is an area of my life that I'm not surrendering to you, Father. And I need to surrender it to you. And all of us have those areas. So can I pray for you tonight? And I would encourage you that if there is an area of your life where you need accountability, where you need somebody to walk alongside you, would you come forward after the service and get prayer, talk to one of the pastors and get the help that you need? Because if you remain an island, you will not have victory in this area. Amen? Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. It, it, it pierces to the heart. And I know that I needed this. Lord, I need this reminder daily to not try to go back to Egypt, to not try to go back to Moses, if you will, but to, to be fixed on Christ, to hold fast. Thank you, Lord, that you don't forsake me Thank you that you are a faithful father. And I I pray over this this room tonight and this group that's gathered here, Lord, with with this many people in a room, there is bound to be so many different things that we're all struggling with. May we realize tonight that each one of us is in the same boat, just trying to survive. And it can feel like the waves just are unending, continually crashing down. And in so many ways, Lord, it's as if tonight you're reaching out your hand of grace and saying, would you let me pull you from the waves? Would you let me rescue you? And so, Lord, may we lay aside our pride. May we humble ourselves and acknowledge that we need you. Lord, I pray that we would repent tonight of things that would keep us separated from you. That if there are things in our life that are out of order, and, and not godly, that we would surrender those things to you tonight. Thank you, Father, for your finished word. Man, it is so good to be able to study your scripture together as your children, to glean and grow from the wisdom that we find within it. And so we ask for you to lead our lives, Lord. I pray that for some people in this room tonight, it'd be a fresh start. That tonight would be a night that they would look back on some years from now and say, that was the night. That was the night where I finally decided to stop hiding this thing, to stop trying to do that thing on my own, and I surrendered to the Lord. And because of that, Lord, we will be refreshed in those areas. We'll be made new in those areas. Lord, you bring new life when you get your hands on something. And so allow us to lay aside our pride and to allow you to come and do the transformative work that only you can do. Thank you that Christ has come, that you are the finished work, We give you our lives together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.